This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. There's a lot that has happened this week when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. And to get us up to speed, we welcome the director of the Illinois Department of Public Health, or as I like to call her, the state's top doc, Dr. Ngozi Ezeke to the program. Thanks for hopping on today, doctor. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. For the sake of our listeners, I just want to acknowledge we are recording this on Friday morning, and we all know that the news can change, so I just want to put that out there. Uh, the big story today, doctor, is this pill from Pfizer, and I know the story is somewhat kind of fresh, but I'm wondering if you've heard any details about the pill and what it's supposed to do. Yeah, we did hear uh, from, a, I think, a press release put out by Pfizer that there's another COVID pill that uh, might be able to come online. I think they're calling it Paxlovid. It's an antiviral medication, so basically it will stop the virus from making more of itself so that you don't have this large uh, number of viral particles in your system. You're supposed to take it as soon as you have any symptoms. I think it's a five-day treatment, two days, you know, two times per, per day, and it's up to 89% effective at uh, decreasing hospitalization. So uh, looks like a, a great uh, development. I know there's another drug uh, by Merck that is also in the pipeline that is also an oral medication. So if we can get these medicines out, get them globally so that all people around the world can uh, not have severe consequences from this virus, you know, that's an important step towards really putting this pandemic to bed and turning it into a, a totally different situation. But this is not like a substitute, at least for right now, for the actual the vaccines from Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson and Moderna, right? Well, I mean, obviously, as a public health official, I am always going to tell everyone that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So prevention, preventing yourself from even getting the disease with a safe and effective vaccine that's readily available, of course, that is the, the number one uh, path, and that's the best way to move forward for those people who, who might choose for whatever reasons that they don't want to get vaccinated. At least we have another way to protect uh, those people's health and hopefully prevent you know, those hospitalizations and other bad outcomes. Also in the news this week, we heard about vaccinations for kids, five through, I think, 11. Um, I want to ask you, what are the current vaccines that can be administered uh, to kids in that age range? So there's only one choice for, basically, for, for any children, anybody under the age of 18, there's only one choice, and that's the Pfizer vaccine. And so we got recently authorized for our 5 uh, to 11-year-olds. It's already been uh, authorized since uh, May for our 12, uh, 12 to 15. So anyone under the age of 18 looking for a vaccine, Pfizer is your, Pfizer is your, is your choice. And what's the difference between then an adult dose and one for children? Is it based on uh, a child's weight as well as their age? How is that uh, figured out? Yeah, so we're, it's, the cutoff is being uh, implemented by age. Uh, the factors that go into that do include, you know, the typically smaller size uh, of that 5 to 11-year-old and also thinking about 
different ways that, you know, our immune system develops, you know, with, with age. So 5 to 11 will have a smaller dose. It's uh, one-third of the dose of the adults, and that adult dose goes for anyone 12 and up. So, you know, 30 micrograms for 12 years on and up, and it's only 10 micrograms for those in the 5 to 11 category. Now, who's eligible to give the vaccine? Uh, is it better to go to a pediatrician? Uh, I, I know that in the city of Chicago, I think I heard um, Allison Arwadi saying that they're going to be rolling out some uh, shots in the schools. Uh, Walgreens, CVS, I mean, what's the best choice for a parent who's considering, yeah, I need to get my kids vaccinated? Yeah, wherever is most convenient for, for that for that. 5 to 11-year-old and their family is, is the best place. We are trying to make as many options available by helping organize school-based events. And at the schools, you know, there we will have our teams of, of vaccinators that will be there with the vaccine to administer. We'll be partnering with physicians in the community, pediatricians, family docs, who will also try to be on hand to answer questions. Uh, of course, there are pharmacies that will have this, and doctors, many of the doctors in our state, uh, pediatric providers, have already signed up uh, to get the vaccine and, and, and are ready to administer it. So call your doctor's office, call your pediatrician and say, do you, do you have the vaccine and I want to sign up? And there's still availability for providers, pediatricians, family docs who haven't signed up yet, you know, they can sign up right away so that they can get involved with the COVID vaccination for their younger patients. Is there any type of medical condition that would prevent a, a younger person from being able to get uh, vaccinated? No, you know, our kids who are, uh, you know, at higher risk, people who have medically complex conditions, who have developmental de de delays, um, neurocognitive disabilities, those are people who are, are high risk and absolutely need to get vaccinated. People with asthma are high risk. Our obese kids, overweight kids are at higher risk. They absolutely need to get vaccinated. So we don't have a condition for which we would say not to, not to get vaccinated. You know, if someone um, is known to be allergic to some component of the vaccine, you know, they can talk with their healthcare provider if, if they, uh, have that. But again, there's not a lot in this vaccine that would uh, cause, uh, you know, severe allergic reactions. So really, this is this is available for essentially every five to 11 year old. Now, the tough part, how do you get the young kid to take the shot? <laughs> how do you convince them to take it? Do you distract them? Any tips that you would give parents out there? You know, parents who have a five to 11 year old have already been through the routine of getting shots. Kids have been getting shots since uh, since they came out of the womb and have been getting had multiple appointments in, in the first year of life in the second year of life you know at four you know you get quite a few shots as you get ready to to go into kindergarten so you know pediatricians and family practice docs and these nurses who give these shots they know the distraction games they know how to entice with stickers uh, some might give lollipops so I think we, we know how to how to do that. Um, and then some of the kids, I mean, I've already gotten so many texts of pictures uh, on my phone of, of five-year-olds and six-year-olds who've, who've already gotten vaccinated, and they're so excited to do so because they said, 
oh, now that means I can travel. You know, now I can have sleepovers. You know, for parents, that means missing less days of school for quarantine or looking around for where can I get tested because my kid was exposed. So all of that drama will be able to be curtailed if kids get vaccinated. So I think they're excited as well. Yeah. Uh, So what about those kids younger than uh, five? Um, Is there will there be a vaccine, do you think, eventually for uh, the youngest of the young or is it necessary? You know, they are working on that. Pfizer says that they have finished um, their enrollment of kids in the two-year to four-year range. Uh, and so they already have those individuals, those two-, three-, and four-year-olds enrolled in the studies. And so we'll be administering uh vaccine to that group and think that they will have information um, by the end of maybe this year or the beginning of 2022. And then there's another group, you know, six months to two years old. Um, They're actively enrolling uh, study participants now and hope that they will be able to get the data to say that they have a vaccine for that age group sometime next year. Hmm. There's this narrative out there that uh, kids in general are less susceptible to COVID. Uh, true or false? Partially true, partially false? What's, where would you put it? Yeah, well, the, the virus and the subsequent variants that we've seen from the original virus that we met in 2020 have actually got uh, increasingly infectious and in finding more and more ways Uh, to infect more people at a time. So, no, kids absolutely can get infected, and and they have. You know, if we look at the data that we have for, you know, people who are not adults getting uh, infected, we've had, I think, upwards of 300,000 cases. So people, young people can get infected. Um, We have seen, fortunately, that they don't get as sick. Uh, as as older individuals. And so maybe they're not uh, heading to the hospital as much, um, but they definitely can get infected. They actually can get ill. We have seen hospitalizations. Unfortunately, we have seen some deaths. And also we know that they can go on to transmit it uh, to other people as well. Speaking of hospitalizations, the governor was out the other day saying that, uh, you know, the mask mandate would go away with some metric that has to do with hospitalizations. Can you explain how that all connects together, hospitalizations and masks? And I know this comes at a time when I think yesterday uh, the state reported that uh, we've we've kind of seen an uptick here in the number of new uh, COVID cases, uh, the most in, I think, seven weeks. So I guess we kind of keep that in the back of our mind. But, uh, you know, what about that? What What is the connection between the hospitalization rate and, and having to uh, continue with the uh, mask mandate? Yeah, so we know that, you know, after vaccination, of another effective tool that we have in our toolbox to help control the spread of the virus are, you know, is the use of, of masks to make sure that you know, to decrease transmission to other people, to, avoid, to limit transmission to ourselves. And so as we wear our masks, we are absolutely helping to control the virus. You know, when we saw that the numbers were all going down again, like you mentioned, for the last seven weeks, we were reporting lower weekly total of cases week over week. 
And there is a connection between how many cases we see and then how many hospitalizations. You know, of course, not every case goes on to be hospitalized, but there's a almost, you know, certain percentage of those cases that will go on to be hospitalized. So when the cases are coming down, that means that proportionally the hospitalizations were coming down. And that's what we saw for seven weeks. Unfortunately, in the last seven to 10 days, we have seen uh, the numbers go up. And so for the last week, we've had, we had 5% more cases than we had the week before. And so that's not the direction we obviously wanted to go. And as cases increase, unfortunately, that will mean that there'll be more hospitalizations as well. So we really um, are, you know, very nervous about thinking about taking our foot off of, you know, one of the measures that helps control uh, transmission uh, at a time when we are, you know, seeing an, an, an uptick. So we're following the numbers very carefully. Um, I know the governor is very sensitive to uh, people in Illinois and their, their desire to, to take a break from the mask, but we want to make sure that we do that at a safe time where we don't think we would uh, cause more cases, uh, especially as we're moving indoors. The, the information we're seeing is that the increase is related to more indoor gatherings that are not masked. And so we have to be sensitive to that and play, play it very safe to continue being cautious. Yeah, and I guess at a time, too, when our temperatures are dropping here, we're getting into the fall and soon into winter that, you know, a lot of those indoor activities kind of shift to, or outdoor activities, rather, shift to indoors. So um, does the Delta variant come into that with that that rise uh, as well that we've seen? Or What's the latest with Delta? And, and I, I know there's some other variants out there as well, right? Yeah, well, the Delta variant is basically 100% of what we're seeing in Illinois. You know, oh, okay. we do the special, the special genomic sequencing to see exactly, you know, which variant uh, we're dealing with. And what we're seeing is uh, 100% Delta. Um, the, you know, the Delta Plus that we had heard a little bit about is actually, you know, related to the Delta. It's a, you know, a, maybe a subset within the Delta. So we're keeping an eye on that. But, you know, we have to follow which way the, the numbers are going. Again, it's, it was, it's a little jarring to see after such nice declines for almost two months now switching for the last week, week and a half. So we're going to keep a close eye on that, and we want people to govern themselves accordingly and, and keep wearing that mask, especially, like you said, everything is moving indoors. The temperature has significantly dropped, uh, and uh, some of the things that we love to do outside are, are going to be moved indoors where there's uh, less space, less air circulation, try to open those doors and windows as much as we can and, and, and encourage people to get vaccinated so that we can, you know, try to get through the holidays uh, and end of year celebrations as safely as possible. What is the uh, vaccination rate right now in the state? Where are we at about? Yeah, like if you take all the 12.7 million people in Illinois, 61% are fully vaccinated. You know, if you break it down to the people who've actually been eligible, um, you know, really until just a few days ago, uh, only the 12 and up were eligible. And so of all those eligible people, 71% of the 12 and up are fully vaccinated. You know, and so we're going to see our uh, total population of people being vaccinated go up as our, as our 5 to 11-year-olds 
uh, lift, you know, lift up their, their sleeve to get vaccinated. So excited for the greater amount of protection that we'll have, you know, across our state. So how do we stack up when uh, compared to other states? I, I would kind of think we're doing better than some. No, we are. Like, if you look at the Midwest, you know, we are we are number one in terms of all of our neighboring states, in terms of uh, people who are fully vaccinated, in terms of people who've gotten at least the first dose so far. So we're definitely on the tra- on track and we're definitely leading the pack uh, in our in our hood, in our neighborhood, if you will. And we want to keep we want to keep doing that. Let's talk about booster shots. Uh, You know, I'm confused. When do I go get mine? Um, (laughs) So I guess when it comes to the booster, what was the time frame supposed to be from the time of your last shot to when you can go and get a booster? Yeah, so the time of your last shot to when you're supposed to get a booster depends on which one you started with. So if you got the J&J vaccine, you can actually get a booster two months after that, uh, that single dose that was received. Uh, and then for the Pfizer and Moderna, you're supposed to wait six months after that second shot. And is that now open to anybody or are they, they uh, limiting that right now for, you know, uh, people who are at a higher risk? I mean, the highest risk individuals is, is clear. Those are the individuals that are over the age of 65 and anyone who lives in a long-term care setting. You know, people who might be younger than 65 but have underlying medical conditions that we know are uh, associated with worse outcomes with COVID, absolutely. And then there are people who uh, maybe can make that determination based on, you know, where they work, that they think they're in a higher risk setting, uh, where they live, they think they're in a higher risk setting. Those are some kind of judgment calls that people can make to say, you know, I, I qualify based on this, uh, this high risk setting that I define myself as being in. So, you know, really people have to look at their situation, look at their, um, their medical conditions. The age one is a, is a straight one to kind of figure out but, you know, we really know that this is a, a safe and effective vaccine. We have seen information uh, from around the world and also in our U.S. data and our Illinois data that there's some evidence of uh, waning. Again, it's not that the vaccines are not protected. We still see clearly that the overwhelming majority of people in the hospital uh, are those who are not vaccinated. But on on in that minority of people who make it into the hospital despite being vaccinated, you know, there are some high-risk categories that we see very prominently. Older people, uh, people with uh, underlying medical conditions, you know, people who live in long-term care settings. So we definitely know who's highest risk, but let's not forget that the highest, highest risk are those who have not gotten a single shot. So yes, we want people to get their third, but I really want people to get shot number one. Is there anything in that booster that specifically targets the Delta variant or have they not gotten there yet? Or does it matter, I guess? I mean, I know that the point of getting vaccinated, you could still get it, but you're not going to end up in a hospital on a ventilator, right? That's right. So, um, you know, these shots that are being administered are the same ones uh, that were um, in development since the beginnings. Um, back in the spring summer of 2020 so back then there there was no there was no uh b117 otherwise 
known as the UK variant. There was no Delta variant at that time. So these are the same uh, vaccines that were developed against the original vaccine uh, against the original virus that we first that we first first identified. You know, uh, coming out of uh, Wuhan, China. Um, so, but we have thankfully seen that these vaccines still are effective against these different variants ha that have come through. And so that's also why, you know, an extra boost, if you will, will bring up those antibody levels just to make sure we can maximize the protection we're getting from these effective vaccines. Great. Well, we've run out of time, Doctor. My thanks to you for joining us on the show today. So uh, thank you very much. So great to be with you, Nick. Thank you. Up next, we have the Reporter Roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable segment here on Connected to Chicago. We welcome in Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Heather Sharon of WTTW's Chicago Tonight, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. And Lynn, I want to start with you. You had a story in the Sun-Times this week. You talked with Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who we know announced last week, said that he was not going to seek re-election. But I think what surprised me is he isn't ruling anything out, including perhaps a run for the White House. Right. So I just want to put this in context. Uh, the Tribune Crane from the Sun-Times has all reported that uh, he would be uh, he has not ruled out any option in terms of a statewide run. And that is uh, to be expected in the run up to the congressional map. And now no one in public life ever rules anything out this early. So CNN yesterday caught up with him. And when asked about a presidential run, he says, I'm not ruling anything out. And that got the ball rolling yesterday. Ironically, uh, I, I mean, it's just kind of how things go. Eventually he would have been asked. Uh, I caught up with him in the Capitol, and he said it again, you know, well, I'm not ruling anything out. And here's why you don't rule anything out. Stop, whenever somebody is considered a presidential contender, even if they're a long shot, they get a platform and they get a megaphone that you would not have if you were just not a presidential contender. Uh, I've written that I don't think he is interested in a statewide run because it would take him away from his crusade fighting Trumpism. Hmm. Greg? I agree with that. Uh, Adam uh, would have been a, been a fool to say that uh, I ruled out something that uh, he hadn't really ruled about. Uh, that doesn't, however, mean he's going to do it. Um, there's uh, there's three things that he's officially put on the table. Sorry about uh, that. One is uh, running for governor uh, of Illinois. I don't think that's going to happen because I see no sign that Adam Kessinger wants to be governor. Two is running for the United States Senate against Tammy Duckworth next year. That's a little more possible because it's in his area of interest. He's a federal legislator, and the Senate is a legislative body. Uh, but beating Ms. Duckworth in a very blue state would be very difficult. And now there's this stuff about president, um, you know, until he makes up his mind. We don't know for sure. Uh, but uh, uh, there's been a lot of speculation out there that Mr. Kinsinger really wants to hold some kind of high-profile national talking position. Maybe it becomes a cable TV host. Uh, maybe he heads an organization that uh, that, uh, that that does things uh, to advance a, uh, 
uh, non-Trump Republicanism around the country. Um, if that's his goal, uh, certainly saying he might run for president is going to help him raise money and attention and get people to work with him or whatever. Uh, but uh, I don't. I think an actual race for another race is is not impossible, but unlikely. At least now. If I could jump in there on this too, um, it, the odds I think of him uh, going for governor or senator are high. That uh, Greg articulated, and I do think that um, it's it at least puts some kind of intrigue into the political atmosphere right now. Um, there is this shift that we saw in the New Jersey and Virginia. Uh, elections uh, where Republicans are tired of, uh, and and some Democrats are, are tired of what's going on in Washington, and um, they are they are shifting a, away from Democrats who have not been able to get their their big programs approved, and uh, he may be able to to uh, try to strike a chord that that could invigorate people who who are dissidents of what's going on in Washington now today, but he still has to answer to the total Trumpers who believe that he uh, was wrong by voting to impeach, et cetera. So um, if he wanted to do a uh, presidential run, well, who knows? I mean, nobody had heard of Bill Clinton outside of Arkansas a long time ago. And, you know, on the flip side, we also had John Anderson from Illinois, who got about six or seven percent uh, in back way back in 1980. So you can take these things any way you want it, and he's got a lot of choices. Do why do I get the feeling that the days of having uh, another Republican senator are 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 over? <laughs> that you know the days of a Mark Kirk, who could kind of compromise a little bit are gone. Uh, nothing is ever over forever in politics, ever. Uh, if there's one constant in politics is, is that once a group, one party or one faction gets a solid control, they overreach, uh, they tie the rope around their neck and they jump and that opens the door for uh, for the other side. That will happen eventually. I don't know. It doesn't look very good for the Republicans right now, but, uh, but forever is a very, 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 very long time. Once you get ensconced in that senator role, it's tough to be ousted. I mean, Paul Simon beat Paul, uh, Charles Percy back in 84, but it's uh, and, and of course, Kurt got beat too, so um, there are changes of climates that can that can occur, but it's still, once you get in there, it's hard to, to knock you out. Right, and another thing I want to point out is, is that the seat to look at really would be, uh, it would seem, Senator Durbin's seat, which is up in four years, in case he decides to retire. If it's an open seat, then I think it's a different political dynamic, and uh, in four years, it may be a different political climate. If if in four years we're dealing with a second President Trump term, uh, you know, it's one environment. If we have a President Biden or a President Kamala Harris four years from now, uh, it all it all is uh, trickle down. And if we don't have a Governor Pritzker and a Republican governor is in Illinois, let's just say is elected, that changes a lot of things. And also uh, the issue that is uh, propelling Kinzinger right now is anti-Trumpism. Maybe if he's successful in his crusade and things change, 
that will mean he might have moved on to something else, too. Lynn, I also read a, a story of yours as well about Michelle Wu, the next mayor of Boston, and she has some ties to the Chicago area. Who is Michelle Wu? Well, here is a real interesting story. Uh, Michelle Wu, is the ma- who is the mayor-elect of Boston, is making history in Boston as the first elected female and the first non-white, non-Irish, non-Italian mayor of Boston. But her political roots are in the Chicago area. Uh, when she was a kid, she was living in Bridgeport with her parents, who are Taiwan immigrants. Her dad was going to IIT. They moved to Barrington. She went to Harvard. But a few years after undergraduate uh, education, she came back because her mother had a a debilitating and increasingly worse mental illness, which she talks candidly about. But in order to help stabilize her mother, she decided to open up a tea house. And where did she do it? At 4229 North Lincoln Avenue, smack in North Center. And when I met her a few years ago, I met her uh, in New Hampshire during right before the New Hampshire primary. She was doing campaigning for Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, After the tea house business, she decided to go to law school, and her contracts professor was Senator Warren, and she got close to her. And so I met her on the campaign trail, and uh, look what happened. A woman who uh, I met as a campaigner for Elizabeth Warren ended up being the mayor of Boston, the one thing she told me that has uh, informed her approach to Boston City Hall is her frustration with the red tape she encountered in Chicago in opening her small business after trying to uh, get the permissions she needed to open her tea house. She finally just said, I'm going to go see the then alderman, Gene Shelter, and lo and behold, after a visit to the alderman's office, Uh, She found that the inspections she needed and the permits she needed all of a sudden fell into place. And and the alderman was able to cut the red tape, and uh, that was an informative uh, experience for her. Why do do I not find it hard to believe everywhere in that land? (laughs) Yeah, it makes me think of the Mirage uh, investigation years ago. Hold on. I want to be careful on that because she she did not insinuate any wrongdoing at all. Her issue was red tape. No, but right. the, uh, you know we all know the, the, the city. We all we all love and hate sometimes at the same time. That, uh, that that this is a place where it still helps to know somebody. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, somebody sent. <laughs> uh, Lynn, we're going to let you go. Appreciate you hopping on, and you can read her stories on uh, the Sometimes website. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, let's uh, shift gears just a little bit and bring in Heather. Uh, kids are getting a day off to go get vaccinated. I don't think that's going to sit well with um, some parents who have to work. <laughs> this is kind of a last-minute uh, deal here, Heather. What's the what's the latest? That's right. So uh, this week, um, the FDA and the CDC formally approved vaccines against COVID-19 for kids age 5 to 11. And um, it will be a massive undertaking for uh, Chicago parents to get their kids vaccinated as quickly as possible. Um, There are roughly 200,000 kids in Chicago alone that are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. And city officials announced late last night that in order to encourage parents to do that, they were going to give 
everyone the day off of school of Friday, November 12th. So um, that is quite a significant change for a school district that typically publishes its calendar of days off months in advance to give working parents um, an opportunity to make sure that they have childcare or that they can take the day off. And this is relatively unprecedented in terms of a change. But we heard uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and CPS CEO Pedro Martinez say this is really an opportunity to give families a chance to get vaccinated against COVID-19 and for their parents or grandparents to either get vaccinated with first or second doses or also booster shots. Um, also, we learned Friday morning that Mayor Lori Lightfoot was giving city employees two hours off on that same Friday to make sure that their kids get vaccinated. And that is also relatively unprecedented because, of course, uh, it is not often that uh, 30,000 employees get a uh, free uh, sort of two hours off of work unexpectedly. But I think that this um really indicates how committed the mayor is into giving people the opportunity to get vaccinated. Uh, of course, it is easier to say than to do, um, and we will have to watch very closely how many kids are vaccinated on that Friday and whether there is enough supply and enough you know, organization in place to make that happen. Hey, Greg, you... Uh have some good news to report, right? Uh, you had a story in Cranes, uh, Standard & Poor's, kind of given uh, the city a little bump. Does this uh, make the mayor look uh, like she knows what she's doing? Well, you know, it helps a, it helps a little bit. Uh, Standard & Poor's followed the lead of Fitch. Uh, so now two or three ratings agencies have changed their outlook on Chicago debt from negative to neutral. Uh, uh, they didn't change the core uh, debt, which is core rating, which is a little bit above, uh, like, two or three levels above junk. But uh, but it's better than it was, and it indicates that uh, with all this federal COVID relief money coming in and uh, a little bit of progress on the pension fund, uh, funding that uh, we're making making some progress. So, the, you know, that's a good thing. Um, potentially the better piece of good news, though, uh, was uh, was the five bids that the mayor received for the casino uh, earlier this week. Mm. Um, uh, that is a lot more than a lot of observers expected. At one point, uh, people thought that it might be Neil Bloom and nobody else. Well, Bloom had two different offers. Uh, Bally's uh, had, uh, two, had two proposals. Hard Rock had a, had a fifth. Um, uh, that indicates that uh, the mayor may get pretty much what she wants uh, because there's competition, and that's very good news for taxpayers uh, because uh, the proceeds from this thing are dedicated to pay down pension debt, uh, particularly for the in the police and, and fire funds. So the question now is when and how quickly. Uh, the mayor indicated today at a press event that she wants us to move to move fast. Um, all of the locations that have been selected are in the central area of the city. They're not going to be out in the, uh, out in the neighborhood somewhere where somebody wants to, where the mayor once suggested that that'd be a nice idea. That's not going to happen because the, the, the people you want to draw, the, particularly the conventioners and the tourists that are in the central area at hotels and and, and at McCormick Place. Um, so it's become real interesting. And the one I would keep an eye on uh, that may have a little bit of momentum is repurposing the uh, lakeside building in the McCormick Place 
campus. It's the easternmost building. Uh, it's almost literally falling apart. Uh, the agency that runs it and owns it says it needs $400 million to, uh, uh, to, to rehab it and turn it into a first-class facility. A few years ago, they talked about tearing it down and building a new one. Well, here, Blum is proposing to take that building, use his own money to uh, to renovate the structure, and give lease money and probably more money to uh, uh, to the agency that runs McCormick Place, which certainly can use it because a lot of conventions haven't occurred in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Um, it's kind of isolated. Um, I would keep an eye on that one. Uh, it may have some uh, some quiet momentum. Well, it's also uh, also got a footprint re- ready to go, so that I think could play well on it too. And if you played, if you redesigned that right, it could be quite the, the place where you would have uh, lake views, et cetera, during some of the beautiful times uh, in Chicago weather. Was the Thompson Center considered in, to... in this at all? Uh, I don't think seriously. Uh, uh, the, the state has, has much better things in mind for okay. that than a casino. Okay. They, want, okay. they want big, big high-rises that pay lots of property uh, taxes. It's talked about before. That's why I, I, I ask. Heather, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to jump in and say that all of the attention on the potential casino sites at McCormick Place is really fascinating to me because really the last time the governor commented in a substantive way on plans for a Chicago casino, he specifically ruled out a casino at McCormick Place. And of course, the, you know, we're a long way towards, you know, sort of the Illinois Gaming Board having to approve these plans, but the mayor and the governor are going to be under a not inconsistent amount of pressure from lawmakers on the south side and the west side to build this casino in a place in, a, in Chicago that has been historically disinvested and that does not have an engine of jobs or um, businesses. Now, that, of course, sort of contradicts what all of the studies have shown that a casino downtown, someplace with good access for tourists, would would earn the most money. So it seems to me that those issues are all going to come to a head as as city officials begin to review these proposals. Um, it, it, you know, we should also mention that the other proposals would be for the south end of McCormick Place. That has already drawn opposition from Alderman Sophia King of the Fourth Ward, who is working to redevelop the former Michael Reese Hospital site and does not want to see a casino between that new development and downtown. Um, There's another proposal that would build a casino at one central, which would build over the the metro tracks near Soldier Field. And and then the other one would, would, would basically tear down the Chicago Tribune's Freedom Center where they have their printing plants, which has sort of been on the auction block for many years now. So there are a lot of different options out there. Um, None of them seem to me to sort of fit the bill, which was what Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Pritzker talked about when this bill went through the General Assembly, which was, one, to provide a a revenue source for Chicago's police and fire pensions, but, two, to also breathe new life into areas of the city, um, much like an Obama presidential center is set to do in in Jackson Park. So pretty soon the rubber is going to meet the road on all of that. If I could kind of come back on that, um, uh, yes, there was some discussion about that. But if you go back and read uh, Lightfoot's uh, comments at the time, she was careful not to lock herself into a, into a, a location out in the neighborhoods. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is, is either the market's going to bite or it's not. 
uh, uh, the city went out and they put out a request for bids. Everybody had a chance to come in, and none of these, none, no casino came in and said, well, we want to build it 79th and Ashland in, in, or in Englewood or uh, on the far west side. And they did so because the market just isn't there. Uh, the people who are going to go to the casino don't want to go all the way out there. They want it to, they want it to be convenient, uh, and the casinos know that. So this really becomes a question of not are you, can you get it out in an outlying neighborhood is are you willing to forego having a casino at all? And there was, remember the taxes on this thing are very high, so high that some people doubted that anybody had bid for it. Uh, do you want a casino at all? Or are you going to demand that it goes somewhere else? If you demand go somewhere else, you may end up with nothing. That's where the rubber really meets the road. Well, the the rubber really meets the road from where I'm sitting right now because I'm in the Tribune building right now where they're talking about <laughs> putting the casino. And, uh, I, uh, I, you know, maybe they ought to put the Tribune in the casino. I don't know. There's been stranger things that have happened in, in this city. But uh, that is just one that took everybody at the, at the Tribune by surprise. And, uh, you know, who knows what will happen. But I do think that uh, this also – uh, shows that that a market like Chicago, no matter how high the taxes uh, are set, will still draw big investors because they know that there will be gamblers here. It also raises the question to me as to whether they really need to needed to roll back the taxes or whether they just gave in to the um, casinos who said after the first uh, version of this bill passed that they had to readjust the taxes to make it uh, more viable. And nobody really knows the bottom line on that because um, they changed it before bids were were uh, taken on the first round. I wish we had another 20 minutes because I think we could do 20 more minutes just on oh, the yeah. casinos because I've got tons of questions and, and how this would work. And I, I just see I see the mayor and the governor probably going to be butting heads on this. But in the last couple uh, seconds we have left, I think we just I wanted to point out Ray Long, you have a new book coming out. The house that Madigan oh. built. Uh, yes. Tell me about it. Thanks. Thanks for mentioning it. I'm, uh, I've been working on this off and on for a couple of three years, and then uh, it all came together here. And uh, with the departure of Mike Madigan um, from the legislature, uh, it uh, just seemed to be a good time to, to put it together. So the timing is uh, good for this book, and I've hit many of the highlights, uh, his legendary career, I, everything from him being a master of uh, reapportionment to uh, getting the White Sox uh, stadium through uh, in, uh, by holding the clock back and uh, and hitting some of the uh, turning points in his career, everything from the, the uh, Me Too scandals where his uh, misbehaving aides really uh, weighed him down in the ComEd investigation, which has uh, played a role in uh, – uh, him losing or being dethroned by his um, fellow lawmakers. So uh, it, it's not a, a, an autobiography that tells you what kind of uh, salad he ate for breakfast when he was a little <laughs> kid, but it, it hits on some of his big political moments. And uh, I've uh, been following him for 40 years, so I've uh, tried to put together the highlights. So the house that Madigan built, the record run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer, being put out by the uh, University of Illinois Press, and out uh, in March, Ray? Yeah, it's uh, scheduled for March 22nd. Uh, of course, I hope it comes out a little bit sooner 
But uh, uh, right now we're looking at a March 22nd uh, publication date, and um, you can find uh, you can pre-order now on on the UI Press website. Excellent. Congratulations. And we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Lynn Sweet of the Chicago Sun-Times, Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, and the published Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Up next, Kim Gordon. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. The holidays are quickly approaching, and that means we'll soon hear that familiar sound of the Salvation Army bell and the red kettles outside of stores and on street corners. Joining me today to talk about the need across Chicago is Captain Javier Montenegro, Divisional Secretary for Programs at the Salvation Army. Welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. So before we talk about the kettle campaign, let's start with need. Every year the need seems to be greater than the year before, but how has the pandemic affected your clients? Yeah, this year we've seen our needs increase tremendously. Many people are living paycheck to paycheck. There are more than 200,000 households in Illinois that are behind on rent. And that's especially concerning to us, um, especially thinking about the moratorium on evictions that ended just a few weeks ago. So we have already seen an increase in people requesting assistance, and we're, we're hoping that it doesn't increase anymore, but we anticipate that many people are still going to struggle over the holidays. And I imagine these are families with young children who are struggling as well, right? That's right. There's, there's families that, that have kids that are in school and struggling to pay rent, um, struggling to put food on the table. Um, and especially during the holidays, we, we want to be there for them to provide hope um, where they might feel like there is no hope. And what are other ways people can help throughout the holiday season if, um, besides just throwing some money in the kettle? Yeah, so during the holidays, there, there's plenty of opportunities, whether it's to help fill a food box, um, to help in other ways um, during the holidays at our website, salearmychristmas.org. There's listings of various opportunities throughout Chicago. We serve every zip code in the Chicago area, and we have 28 service centers throughout the area where they can help, again, fill a toy box. They can, do they can donate toys. They can help fill food boxes and other volunteer opportunities if people want to connect and support in that way as well. And give us your website in case people want to go for more information or figure out what's the best way to volunteer. Our website is www.salarmychristmas.org. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. As well as our reporters, Ray Long of the Tribune, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Also, thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.